From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. And you know what my favorite thing about doing that is? That people always say that they didn't know there were so many things about language that were interesting and that they end up thinking about language in a new way. I took a class once on zoology, and the teacher was an entomologist, insect person. And one of the most valuable lessons I learned from him was when he gave us all nets and we went out to some roadside and just collected bugs. And he showed us how if you keep a sharp eye, there are all kinds of exotic and nifty insectly creatures hanging around just about on any plot of land. And I've kept that with me because language is the same way. There's so much in so little. And I want to give you a dose of that today with what seems like the most utterly uninteresting little word, no. Yes, it's going to be all about no. First of all, no actually exemplifies a lot of the things that I've been going on about in these shows. And so, for example, something you would never think about is that no starts out as a contraction of all things. It's first ne, which means not, and then a, which long, 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 long ago meant roughly ever. And so what ne a meant was basically never. And if you think about it, there's a short distance between never and just notness. There are kinds of English where never is used where we're used to using not. So put ne and a together. And after a while, you're saying na. And then the sound changes. And so after a while, na becomes no. And you think how, but you don't have to think about it. Because remember last time we talked about that sound change from a to o. A after a while is a. A after a while is o, which means that the o used to be an a. Well, na, no, no, or nay, as some people say down under. And my second daughter is going to kill me in about 10 years that this is going to be her social media debut. But this is my second daughter saying no quite recently. No. My second daughter, if you want to know what she looks like, is just picture Betty Boop and color her in brown. That is exactly what she looks like. And my other daughter, she looks precisely, it's almost alarming, like Shirley Temple, except you could say that my daughter is Shirley Temple Black. Ha ha ha. Anyway, with no, there are all sorts of little tidbits. So for example, no is one of those things that you don't really need. You don't need a word for no. Just like you don't need a be verb. You don't need it in the present tense especially. You don't have to have an explicit way to mark plural. Or if you're going to mark plural, you can only mark it when you absolutely have to. You can leave it to context most of the time. You don't have to mark tense. There are languages that really just don't at all, and quite a few more where it's much more optional than it is for us. And you know, yes, and no are the same thing. It seems so natural to us in English that you would have a word for yes and a word for no. But then many of you listening might be familiar with languages that you actually speak where actually there is no such word. Because if somebody says, are you drinking coffee? You could say yes, but you could say, I'm drinking coffee or just I drink or just drink. You mean you're not going to go? Your answer could be not going. You don't have to say 
No, there is a state which I wish to give a label to, which is the negative of what you don't need to have a word for that at all. Those of you who speak Mandarin Chinese will notice that, for example, if you say shoulda for yes, what you're saying is roughly isness, but in terms of a word that means yes only and a word that means no only, not really. That's common in languages. And it's interesting, that is also true. Of Irish. And as we know, there are an awful lot of people, one, who have spoken or speak Irish and also speak English, or today, a great many people who speak Irish English, who speak maybe only a little Irish itself, or maybe none. And yet, listen to something that's often remarked about Irish English speaking people. Listen to this woman, for example. Your name is Sharon. It is. And you're from Ireland. I and you have been in New Zealand for 10 years. I have. And you would like to be a psychologist. I would. And your favorite food is ice cream. It is. And today is a beautiful day. It is. And you have never been to Iceland. Never. Can you tell me a three-letter word that means affirmative? Why is it that Irish never say yes or no? To be sure. (laughs) So see, why won't she say yes or no? There's a reason, and it's because in Irish Gaelic itself, there are no such words. And so you come up with other ways of assenting or negating. And so there she is doing it. So that means that take a song that all of us walk around singing, No, No, Nanette. Here it is. Um, one rendition of that once famous Broadway musical. No, no, That's all I hear. I get it the whole day through. No, no, It's in my ear. No if you were going to translate that song into many languages, it would have to be something like you can't nanette because you can't have no, no, because there would be no word for it. Whenever you say no... You're using a word which in terms of having uh, even a nuanced expressive language is utterly unnecessary. So much of language is neither mechanically necessary nor culturally necessary. It's just gorgeous Dr. Seuss confetti frill. It's part of the fun of it. Not only is it unnecessary, but it's actually less complicated than it used to be. Go back to earlier English and you would find yourself having to master a way of handling both yes and no that would seem just so unnecessary because everybody would sound like they were speaking at least something like English, but things were more complicated. So, for example, it's 1450 and somebody says, is he going? Your answer would be, nay, he isn't. Now, that alone, we think, well, it was just cute and archaic, like, you know, the and thou, etc. Is he going? Nay, he isn't. But if somebody said, he isn't going, then your answer would be, no, he is. Not nay, he is. No, he is. No was when somebody had said something negative. Default no was nay. So, is he going? Nay. He isn't going? No. And yes was like that, too. Is he going? Yay. He isn't going? Yes, he is going. So kind of like that C in French that we English speakers think is so cute. English used to work that way too. And you can hear this in Shakespeare. It was falling apart 
by about 1600. And so Shakespeare isn't absolutely consistent. But nevertheless, his English was one where nay was default and no was in response to something negative. For example, let's use Hamlet and David Tennant, who is beloved by many of us for Doctor Who. I say us, but to tell you the truth, little secret, I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who, but everybody loves David Tennant. Let's use his Hamlet. Here is where he is listening to things said, and someone asks him, Thou knowest tis common all that lives must die passing through nature to eternity. Aye, madam, it is common. This is his mom. If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam, nay, it is. I know not seems. So, that's the regular no. Gertrude is asking, why are you so upset about something that frankly happens all the time? And then he just uses nay. But now when he sees his father's ghost and he's talking to other people, listen to how the phraseology goes. And this time it's not nay, but no. Listen closely, because since this is good Shakespeare, people actually dare to speak quickly now and then instead of declaiming. Here we go. This is David Tennant again, because he used to be Doctor Who. Beckons you to go away with it. As if it's some impartment it desires you alone. It waves you to a more removed ground. But do not go with it. No, by no means. You won't speak by the You hear that? Do not, and then the answer is no. That's because there are really two no's in English a long time ago. This was one of those complicated things that basically just kind of floated away like autumn leaves. Any language is deigning certain things just too complicated to bother with and leaving them go. Nay and no had different meanings. Something else about knowness is double negatives and the way that we often think of them. I don't see nothing. To me, that sounds very sweat sock. That is colloquial at best, but there's a part of all of us that thinks that that's just wrong because we're told by people in authority that that is just wrong because somebody has probably bopped you on the back of the head, either physically or metaphorically, and said, well, if you say that you don't see nothing, then that means that nothing is what you're not seeing. And that means that you saw something, right? And so you're contradicting yourself. You're not using logic. And when someone tells you that, you probably remember some cloudy day when you were about seven that somebody said that to you and you worked to have it make some kind of sense in your head. You think, well, yeah, but But then somebody hits you again, and so you just leave the butt go, and you learn that you're supposed to say, I don't see anything, and I don't see nothing is something that you kind of keep quiet. But really, what's interesting is that grammar can be strangely unlogical. And by that, I mean that we can be quite clear and even artfully clear without it following what happened to be the rules of mathematical logic. And one way that we know that the idea that I don't see nothing or I didn't go nowhere isn't illogical in the sense that we're told, is that that's how English works when it's left alone just about everywhere in the world. Anywhere where there's an English that people are speaking easily and confidently, there are these things that are often called double negatives. Just think about it. So here in America, If we're going to think about the vernacular, what comes to my mind spontaneously is the honeymooners. And so Jackie Gleason and Ed Norton. Norton, you know you don't see nothing. 
is how Jackie Gleason would have said it. Norton would have answered back something like, hey, Ralphie boy, I don't see nothing. That's how those men would have talked. That sort of speech continues today. Think about The Sopranos. Think about my movies this week actually have been um, Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Think about them. Double negatives all over the place. What happens? I come out of the yard. I don't know this building. Meek, I don't know nothing. We couldn't get out. It was like a box. Big like this. You don't know anybody by the name of Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. You know, I borrowed money all over this neighborhood, left and right, from everybody. And I never paid them back. So I can't borrow no money from nobody no more, right? This is not new. And so last time I played Orson Welles doing a Falstaff excerpt. Let's hear that excerpt again and notice that Falstaff here in Shakespeare uses a double negative. A man cannot make them laugh. And that's no marvel. They drink no wine. There's never none of these demure boys come to any proof. So it's a very ordinary thing. What's weird, actually, is what the standard form is. I do not see anything. We say it all the time, but you ever thought how odd that is? If you've learned another language, chances are double negatives were ordinary. You had to learn that double negatives were perfectly okay. Very common worldwide. But in standard English, we have to say, I do not see anything. Now, we just say it all the time, but really think about how odd that construction is. I do not see anything. As if you have to modify it in that way. Think about what any means. I am not going anywhere. As if there's a such thing as a where that can be modified by any. It's a very odd construction. And actually, it comes in with the bourgeois, maybe bougie people who happen to speak the dialect of English that happened to be chosen as the standard because they were in and around London and they were people of influence. And so it was their kind of speech that happened to get written down and codified in the books. I think it would be facile to think that they on purpose used a rather bizarre construction because it would be a great way of sounding special and making it hard for the people socially, quote unquote, beneath them to rise. But nevertheless, there are some ways in which what's called standard English sometimes seems almost deliberately constructed to be difficult to people who have other things to think about. And I do not see anything is one of those things. Once you think about that, you almost want to be rid of it. It's kind of like this guinea pig that I had when I was much, much younger. And that guinea pig always seemed faintly burdened. She dealt with it. Her name was Coco, but just faintly burdened. And it turned out that she was pregnant. One day there was this little guinea pig next to her. If we could get rid of, I don't see anything, we would feel like postpartum Coco, but we're just not allowed. More oddness about how we negate a sentence. I do not see him. Okay, so do not see him. Or he walks not, somebody might say, if they were going to be rather arch. It's kind of interesting, this not, because really, isn't this a weird way to negate a sentence? If any of you have spent even an evening with another language, a quick okay cupid date evening with another language then you know that really what it's supposed to go is you would say i and then some word that means no and then the verb and so 
Yo no voy. Spanish, I'm not coming. That's the way it's supposed to be. So, for example, here is an ancient George and Ira Gershwin musical that was a failure because it was too acerbic for the times. And despite the fact that the times were the height of the Great Depression, this is Let Em Eat Cake. And this is a scene where diplomats all of a sudden pretend that they don't understand English when they're asked to pay back their war debts. It's a nasty little musical. It almost ends with uh, guillotining. And yes, that's 1933. Anyway, listen to the, the lyric here, which basically summons what we think other languages are supposed to be like, because as often as not, they are. No comprene, no capiche, no feste. So that's supposed to be, I suppose, some kind of French, and then Italian, and then German. That's what we think of as normal, because really it is. It's supposed to be something like, I know walk. And that is the way English used to have it. It used to be, I, and then that, that nay word, I, ne, walk. Now, what are we doing with this not business? What happened is something that we can see more transparently in French, because French is further back in the process than English is. If you've ever had any French, then one of the weird things about it is that it has that headphone way of making a verb negative, where you have something on both sides. And so if je is I and marche is walk, then if I don't walk, then it's je ne marche. Now, it should stop there. You think, why, why do you need to do more? But it's je ne marche pas. Now, what is that pas doing there? Pas means step. And in an earlier stage of French, you would say, je ne marche, and I'm not walking. That's normal. That's what especially a European language is supposed to do. But if you wanted to be vivid about it, you would say, I'm not going to walk a step. Je ne marche pas. So it was vivid. But if you say it over and over and over again, after a while, it just becomes the way you say it. And after a while, je ne marche pas just meant, I'm not walking. And the pas no longer meant step. It was just another part of making the verb negative. Something starts vivid and then the joke wears off, so to speak. I remember in 1988, I was in a musical where there was one guy who was made fun of as being the bass from hell. Oh, he's the bass from hell. No, it was not me. And that was a joke then. It was a belly laughing to imagine calling him from hell. Now that's a very ordinary expression. There are other ways that you would make people laugh. The joke has worn off. Same thing happened with this pas. Now imagine time going by. And so je ne marche pas. Je marche pas. Je marche pas. After a while, the ne starts to get kind of swallowed up. And you can hear this today in colloquial French, where really, if you're going to learn to be a person in French, one of the first things you have to learn is that you're not supposed to pronounce the ne a great deal of, frankly, most in many contexts of the time. Now, who better to demonstrate this for us than Celine Dion? She speaks French. And here is a song of hers that displays this beautifully. 
Okay, hear her here. So, je suis pas. Not je ne suis pas. So, I am not. And she's saying she's not a dove. Je sais She knows the cold, which you would expect because she lives in But life without you, listen. So, je sais pas, not je ne sais pas, je sais pas, because this is pop, so it's supposed to sound familiar and authentic. And so you don't say je ne sais pas. You could, but that's when you're giving a news report. Je sais pas. That's just how you say it. And so, that's, <laughs> we can enough of this horrible song. <laughs> But that is an example of how you get from je ne sais to je ne sais pas to je sais pas. So think about that. Pas used to mean step and now it means not. English, it was the same thing. It used to be that you would say ik ne singa. And that's I don't sing. Now, if you wanted to be vivid about it, you could say ik ne singa nocht. So, not, I'm not going to sing not, I'm not going to sing a thing. And the double negative was perfectly okay back then, even when people were in their Sunday best. So, ich singe nacht. After a while, you say that enough, and it doesn't sound like not anymore. It just sounds like something negative. It just becomes default. It's just like the from hell joke wears off. And then what happens if the ne wears away, just as it does in French, then you have ich singe nacht. I sing not. That's how that happened. And so in both of those cases, pa meant step, not meant not. Now they both just mean no-ness. They've become grammar. That is a tease for you of that process I told you I was going to tell you about on the last show as to how if language is always wearing away, it doesn't just become dust. It's because new things are always emerging at the same time. And a lot of new things emerging comes from this process where something goes from being a thing to being a piece of grammar. There's a name for this process. It's called grammaticalization. And I don't like using the term because grammaticalization sounds like you went in somewhere and had something removed. But that is what it's called in the linguistics literature. It's the creation of new grammar. Finally, have you noticed that quite often these days, no means yes? Now, I don't remotely mean that in terms of issues relating to dating, but I mean that very often, just as people complain that literally often means figuratively, we use no to agree with people. It's delightfully bizarre. There was a former episode of Lexicon Valley about this, but I want to pitch in my two cents about it because I think it's really interesting. And of course, reinforcement is always a good thing. I refer to good old yeah, no, which has crept into the language and really taken over, especially in roughly the 21st century. And yeah, no is interesting. It shows how much of the way we actually talk is about shared context. And so, for example, Diana might say, they kept saying nobody would get there on time and everybody ended up there ahead of schedule. And then Francesca says, yeah, no, the trains are actually running on time now. It's amazing. Yeah, no. Well, why no? She's agreeing. So why does she say no? 
And often there is no yeah. And so it would be Diana says they kept saying nobody would get there on time and everybody ended up there ahead of schedule. Then Francesca would say, no, the trains are actually running on time now. It's amazing. So she's agreeing, but she's saying no. Well, why? And it's interesting how that usage comes about. When you say yeah, no like that, you're using the no to deny some other impression of the situation that people other than you and the person you're talking to have. And you two know it. You don't have to talk about it, but you know it. So you're denying or saying no to other people who are hypothetically there. And so they kept saying nobody would get there on time and everybody ended up there ahead of schedule. Yeah, no. The no is to the people who kept saying that nobody would get there on time. So it makes perfect sense. You end up agreeing with somebody, partly in denying the people who would disagree with what both of you are about to agree with. You can see this in all sorts of places. The yeah, no tells you that there's something that's being denied. It can be funny. How I Met Your Mother, an early episode, had a perfect yeah, no exchange. Listen to how Alison Hannigan uses it. And they actually comment about it, which shows that this was a little bit less entrenched back when this episode happened. (laughs) So, Lil, Marshall's family, whole weekend with the future in-laws. You excited? Yeah, no, it'll be fun. Lily, you just said, yeah, no. (laughs) Did I? No, I I love Marshall's family. But yeah, no, it'll be great. You just did it again. Yeah, no, shut up. The no is a tip-off that there's something that she's uncomfortable about. Mark Liberman, who is one of the founders of what I think of as the best linguistics blog ever, Language Log, very nicely puts how this yeah, no works in technical terms. And it's so beautiful that I'm just going to read it for those of you who prefer more formal definition. Liberman says... It acknowledges the interlocutor and suggests agreement while simultaneously indicating novelty in the form of divergence from shared presuppositions or expectations. That is just Gibbon-esque. It's just perfect. But what it comes down to is if somebody says, do you like octopus? And then somebody else says, yeah, no, it's really good. The no is because, frankly, octopuses are little, and no, nobody should say octopodes. Octopuses are a little odd, and whatever you think of them, and we hear a lot these days, there's a whole book now about how smart they are, etc. It's not the first thing you would want to eat unless you were desperate, kind of like turnips. It's one of those things where you would rather kind of leave it alone. And yet, octopus, as many of you probably know, is oddly good when it's tamed and cooked, and you can bite it without it biting you. You should think about the cephalopods sometimes, giant cephalopods in particular. You know, there's squid that, depending on how you measure them, are 50 feet long. They are rather intelligent, and frankly, they are as mean as honey badgers. It's something to think about. I've had many the nightmare about the giant squid. Peter Benchley didn't only write Jaws, he wrote a whole book about mean giant squids. It was called Beast. It won't surprise you that that wasn't as successful, although there was a TV movie. On that, You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show was edited, as always, by the uniquely tolerant Mike Vuolo. And I remain myself. See you here next time.
My name is no, my sign is no, my number is no. You need to let it go, you need to let it go, need to let it go. First you gonna say, you ain't running game, thinking I believe in every word. Call me beautiful, so original, telling me I'm not like other girls. I was in my zone, before you came along, now I'm thinking maybe you should go. Blah, 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 I be like, nah, to the eye, to the no, 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 no. Okay, I'll admit, I am a nerd. It's kind of a badge of honor these days. Why don't you take your nerdiness to a new bragworthy place and check out the podcast Whistle Stop. It's for fans of presidential campaign history. This is with John Dickerson of Slate's Political Gabfest. And in each one, he revisits a moment from what you could call the American quadrennial carnival. You're going to hear about the big speeches, the emergency strategies, the kissings of the babies, the stabbings of the backs, etc. For example, did you know that Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump actually do have a lot in common? In any case, this is a political history podcast that brings together moments that are sometimes obscure from the past to the political chaos of today. If you think politics have never been crazier, think again, and maybe learn some lessons about how not to repeat the mistakes of the past. 